1: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bliss Cleveland, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Chris Marsh. Dr. Marsh is a sociologist, demographer, and professor at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Marsh's scholarship focuses on topics such as the Black middle class, racial residential segregation, and the sociology of education. In today's conversation, we will discuss Dr. Marsh's latest monograph, The Love Jones Cohort Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. It's a fantastic book that examines topics such as the mental and physical health, wealth building practices, residential choices, and dating habits of an emerging Black middle class that is single and living alone. Dr. Marsh, thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your work.
0: Well, thank you, future Dr. Cleveland. It is a pleasure to be here with you. And I'm really excited to be in conversation with you about the book.
1: So something I saw and that I wanted to mention is that today is August 8th and something exciting, there's something exciting debuting with the book. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely.
0: So, the audiobook of the Love Jones cohort is actually going to be released today. And I'm super excited about it. And the reason why I'm especially excited about the audiobook is because typically academic books can be recorded as audiobooks in one of two ways. Either the publisher, which is Cambridge, can reach out to audio producers and ask them to produce the book, or if produce audio producers think the book has a lot of potential, they'll reach out to publishers and ask the publisher if they can produce the book. The, the listeners want to guess how my book went. I'll let you know. The audio producers reached out to Cambridge and said, we see potential in this book and we want to publish it. So it's actually going to be released today. So I'm really excited that they saw something in the book.
1: That's wonderful. That's so good. Um, You know, the book, it's an important and really timely book because it looks at sort of an overlooked, but what you call growing population. I know that going from idea to monograph can take a long time. And I'd like to start out by hearing how you sort of came to conduct the research that led to this book. That
0: is a wonderful question, and it was a very long journey. The book actually took seven years to write. I collected the data for the book in 2017. Mm -mm. I collected the data for the book 2015. I collected the data in 2015, and I was going to collect the data, write the book, and have it out a couple of years later. I had to ask for extension, beyond extension, beyond extension, because life happens. I went to South Africa on a Fulbright 2017 and didn't do much writing on the book. When I got back from South Africa in 2018, I started doing... Police training and implicit bias training with police officers, and I had zero bandwidth after spending the day with the officers to go home and write on the book. But eventually, I was able to hobble together a first draft of the book. And when I think back to that first draft, I want to bury it, burn it, unbury it, and burn it again. Let me tell you why. Because I hobbled together a first draft. And I sent it to the publisher. It was years late, late, and delayed, and. I got back 15 pages, single space of revisions. It's really funny because typically, to, for, to contextualize it, typically you're going to get about three pages of reviews, double space. I got 15 pages, single space, and the funny part of it is that I'm from Los Angeles, and Kobe Bryant died around the same time that I got my reviews. So I had tears meeting up under my chin. And so my family was like, you really liked Kobe Bryant. I didn't have the courage to tell them no. I do like Kobe Bryant, but no, I have a 15-page, single-space reviews set of reviews for the book. So I cried myself to sleep. I ate Oreo cookies and Haagen-Dazs ice cream, and then the next morning I realized if the book would have been horrible, they would have written a half a paragraph and said Cambridge will not publish this. But they said the book's got potential, and they gave me a 15-page roadmap that I had to follow. So in the middle of COVID, I sat. I had writing. Accountability partners that helped me, and we wrote the book. So it took a while, but I'm so happy that it's here. But I'm also really happy that happy that it was delayed because, because it was delayed. We were sitting in the middle of a global pandemic and we also were grappling with George Floyd and this racial air quotes awakening in the world and globally. And so it really allowed me to write the book that I wanted to write. I wrote the book I wanted to write. And if Cambridge didn't like it, I was 100% okay with leaving Cambridge and going someplace else. But I absolutely wrote the book that I wanted to write.
1: Yeah. No, that's an amazing story. Um, The book that you did write, it's just, it's so rich and it's so great. You know, in the introduction, you sort of talk about how contemporary understandings of singlehood tend to depict it from the perspective of sort of white individuals, despite popular media's increased focus on Black middle-class characters in film and sitcoms who are portrayed beyond the domain of the nuclear family. Can you talk about why you think there's such a divergence in these portrayals
0: right that you know and that's such a great question and it's kind of um I was talking to someone just the other day and I'm aging myself because I was talking about a show a sitcom that came out many years ago it was called Murphy Brown and there was it was an executive who was a single parent I can't remember the woman's who the off the, uh, the um the actor but it's kind of funny how like we have uh the rise in single parenthood in Black America and it was pathologized. And then Murphy Brown, the character had a single, was a single parent. And oh my gosh, it's this beautiful idea and everybody should banner, um, should wrap their minds around it and celebrate it and bannerize it. I felt like what was happening kind of in the singlehood scholarship is that you saw a rise in white women in particular that were single. And it felt like a lot of the scholarship had a white gaze or it had a white focus. And I was like, like, oh, no, we're not getting ready to do that. What we are going to do is write this book as a love story to Black women. Excuse me. We're going to write this as a love story to Black women, and we're also going to make sure that Black women get their flowers and get their props. And they are thought of as the pioneers on how to do singlehood and how to do singlehood in the effective and efficient kind of way. And so it was really important to me that we didn't discount black women in this entire conversation and not allow the scholarship to take a white gaze or a white face. And that's what the book really does try to do. And that lead, that dovetails nicely into the title of the book. People often wonder about the title of the book. And I tell all anybody that I talk to and the listeners here, it's really cool and fun to write a book with an interesting title, because people will pick it up just because of the title. And in some ways, it could be coded language or a nod to a certain group of people, because some people say the Love Jones cohort, like, okay, Dr. Marsh, I see what you did there. And they automatically pick up the book. Other people who don't know the coded language or the word say, huh? The Love Jones cohort. I'm not really sure what that's about. Let me pick it up and pick up the book and buy it. So titles matter and fun titles really can matter. And in this case, it, I've gotten a lot of people that, one of my colleagues who was a criminologist, uh, older, retired criminologist, he was like, I saw the title and I bought it because I was intrigued by the title. I was like, bet. I was like, great. Yes. But people often ask where the title comes from and what the title is based on. And so speaking to kind of to your point about um, this demographic shift that we see in media, if we think about like the quintessential Black middle class family, people often think about the Huxtables on the Cosby show. But we started to see on the small screen and the big screen where we moved away from this heteronormative mother, father, 2.5 kids and black picket fence to characters that were young, black, professional, weren't married and didn't have any children. Love Jones, which was written 26 years ago, was the first kind of demarcation where we start to see this clear shift. There's other movies and sitcoms that I could have used, but because in some ways Love Jones was the pioneer, I wanted to pay respect and again an homage to those that pioneered this demographic shift away from this heteronormative idea of middle-class to young Black professionals. So I named it Love Jones, and then I threw cohort on the end because I am a demographer, and cohort is nothing more than a band of people. And I'm a professor, so I want to teach people stuff. And so I want people to be able to use the word cohort that they may have never used before. It's so cute to hear my mom talk about like a cohort. I'm like, okay, mother, I just schooled you on some demographic terms. It's funny. It's a funny story. If I have a moment, I was on a panel with, um, I was doing an author meets critic for someone at Harvard. And she had said that in her book, inside her book, her publisher told her to not use the word cohort to talk about different groups of women and how they thought about the labor market, because the reader wouldn't understand what a cohort is. And I was like, and this was in the book. And so it was my turn to talk about her book. I said, wow, that's really interesting because I put it in the entire title (laughs) of my book because if people don't know about it, by the time they finish reading the book, they will know what a cohort is. So I really wanted to make it a kind of educational moment as well. So when I was at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, my mentor, Sandy Darity, really helped me to kind of think about the term, the Love Jones cohort, and it's kind of stuck ever since.
1: Cool. And tell us, Who is in the Love Jones cohort? Who qualifies for membership in this group?
0: Right, you know, and that's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that question because people often think it's only women in the group. And I, as a scholar, had to grapple with whether or not I wanted to include men or women in the group, in the cohort. And I do actually have both men and women in the cohort. And people, I've talked to people like, okay, so you wrote this book about black women, I was like, well, no, it's actually black women and men that are in the cohort. So to be in the Love Jones cohort, you have to be single and never married married and you have to have no children and you have to be defined as the middle class and the reason why I wanted people who were single never married because I get pushback because there's people that return to singlehood because of widowed separation or divorce and they're like well why can't we be in it I'm like listen this is the group that I defined I'm I don't have a monopoly on the group but this is how I define them so if you return it back to singlehood go on call yourself a part of the love jones cohort but when I was doing my research I wanted to be really clear I wanted to look at people who had never been married because I think there's a difference between people who were exposed to the stimuli, that being marriage, and those who hadn't been exposed to the stimuli. So I wanted those who had never been married. And then it weaves a beautiful story later on in the book when I talk about like issues of like wealth and how you're going to disseminate your wealth. And so- we had a wonderful um, scheduler who scheduled all of our interviews. Her name was Kendra Barber. At the time it was Kendra Barber. It's now Dr. Kendra Barber. And so she scheduled these wonderful interviews. We would go out to these interviews and about 45 minutes or 56 minutes or an hour and a half into the interview, people would say, well, I'm married, but I was married, but I'm divorced and that person's dead to me. So I'm considered single. Or they would say something like, You know, my kids are money-grubbing leeches, so I'm not going to leave anything to them because they're over the age of 18. But here's the thing. Because you have children, you can make the decision to not give your wealth, bequeath your wealth, to your children. I want people who have never been married and don't have any children and what kind of decisions are they making about their wealth? So I have a very strict parameter for how you can be, who can be in the middle, in the Love Jones cohort. You have to be single, never married. You have to have no children and you have to be considered middle-class. But where it gets a little murky sometimes, and if I have a moment, I just want to um, kind of dove, dovetail a little deeper into that conversation. There's also in the book, I talk about the term sala single and living alone. Now, there's two different there's two different groups of people I want to make sure we understand. To be in the Love Jones cohort, you have to be sala, single and living alone and middle class. But sala's single and living alone doesn't mean you have to be middle class. That is clearly just your living your living situation. As long as you don't have any children and you're not married, you can be black, white, pinstripe, or purple, and consider yourself in the solid category. But if you're talking about middle class and blackness, then the Love Jones cohort are people that are black, middle class, and their solid households. Other racial and ethnic groups can use the Love Jones cohort if they want to, but only if they are actively fighting oppression against black people and fighting anti-black sentiments. If you're not doing that, I prefer that you not use my term.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, no, um, thank you. I was gonna <laughs> period full stop. Not I, was, I was gonna ask about the difference between Sala and Love Jones cohort. And no, that's a really good differentiation. Mm-hmm. Something else that I notice is that owning assets appears to be a central sort of characteristic of those in the Love Jones cohort. Can you tell me why that is?
0: Right. That's a really great question. So the first part of my academic career, I looked at the Love Jones cohort from a quantitative perspective. I looked at large data sets like census data to really clearly demonstrate that we have an emergence of this group within the black middle class. In fact, in some of my earlier work, I showed that the second, excuse me, I showed that the second largest household type in the black middle class are people that are single and living alone. And so if the second largest household type, of of course behind married, not of course, but behind married couple households. So if the second largest household type in the black middle class is single and living alone, how is the black middle class gonna reproduce itself? The conversation is around how class status is usually transferred from parent to child. But if the second largest household, the black middle class is single living alone and don't have any children, how is the black middle class going to reproduce itself. So one of the things I say in the book is that I try to put uh, metaphorical meat on the numeric bones that I have built over the years, and it was really important for me to really demonstrate that the Love Jones cohort existed in the black middle class. So I used the strictest measures that I could I also aligned with what the literature talked about. So there's a lot of literature about around the black middle class that talks about the fragility of the black middle class, that the black middle class are one or two paychecks away from poverty, which is something the members of the cohort talked about in the book, but they're one or two paychecks away from poverty. So when a global pandemic hits, if we don't have wealth building assets, are we able to still be middle class? And what does that do for our status? And so on and so forth. So it was really important for me to think about how we define the middle class, how wealth is a part of that conversation, how wealth should be a part of that conversation. But what's really interesting, people think I'm trying to put a value judgment on wealth. And so in the quantitative work, I um, use homeownership as a proxy for wealth because I was using census data, right? So people are like, well, what about people that are young black professionals who don't want to get bogged down with the house and and I get that and I understand that but I am trying to develop this group I'm using strict standards because I'm already talking about black people who are middle class I'm going to get some pushback so I gonna make the strictest standards as possible. But what's interesting is that though I built a black middle class index, we can talk about that, if you want to, but there were four measures. It was education, income, occupation, and home ownership, which is a proxy for wealth in the quantitative work. And so people are like, well, be, since you have that wealth indicator in there, that's draw, that's drawing down like the numbers that would be like in your index or who would be middle class. And actually education was much harder to load on in the index than was the, the wealth measure. So I, I, it was important to me, I wanted to look at national data. Once I looked at national data, I wanted to then pivot and I wanted to actually talk to people. I'm like, it's one thing to have like the numeric bones. It's another thing to put like some meat on those bones. And that's what the book really tried to do. And I remember one time I had done uh, like a pod, I had done a vlog, I think it was for CNN. And they asked, me to, they asked me to do the vlog and I said, okay, under one condition, I don't want to read my comments. And so they're like, okay. So the vlog actually blew, the vlog blew up. And so like, oh, Dr. Marsh, we got so many hits. Would you please, please, please respond to some of your comments? I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. your girl don't read the comments. No, stop. Mm-mm, don't do it. Uh-uh. So they said, well, we're going to pull out some of the comments and then we're going to send them to you. We'll send some of the good ones for you to respond to. So I was like, these are the good ones. So one of the comments, one guy said, uh, I I think he identified as a male. He said, um, Dr. Marsh probably just went to a hair salon and talked to some of her friends about this Love Jones cohort. And I'm like, no, I actually have national representative data I've crunched numbers, I build a regression analyses. I did synthetic cohort analysis to talk about this group. And because comments like that come up, it was really important for me to use very strict measures, measures and make sure I was clearly in line with what the research was saying. And so that's why I had the very strict measure about um, education, income, occupation, and home ownership to be uh, defined as middle class.
1: And then another question about membership in the cohort never having been exposed to marriage is sort of another sort of analytical decision you made. Can you talk to us more about that qualification?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So again, I think that there's a difference between people that have been married and are returning to singlehood and those that have never been married in fact i appreciate later on in the book one of the chapters i can't remember now i drew from some of my colleagues work elia kim kislev who wrote a book called happy singlehood and one of the things he kind of argues in the book and he pulls on research um, from other scholars as well and the subtle argument that's being made is that people that are long-term never married actually can tend to be happier as they age Part of the reason why they tend to or can possibly be happier as they age is because they build networks. So they have friends that they go to church with, they can go golfing with, they can use profanity with, because your girl likes a little bit of profanity every now and again. And so they build a network. So as they age, they have different people to do different things with. But people that are married, they put all of their eggs in the marriage basket. And their their partner becomes like their friends, their golf buddies, their travel buddies, their foodie buddies, and everything. So when they find themselves returning back to singlehood, they don't really know how to navigate as they age, and they're not quite as happy. So I wanted people who had never been exposed to marry marriage and what are the lifestyles that they are leading? Because one of the things I say in the book, and one of the reasons why I really wrote the book is because I was trying to destigmatize singlehood. When we think about singlehood, people are so hell-bent on not being single that they'll get in or holding the title of single, that they'll get into relationships that are toxic, oppressive, abusive, and unfulfilling simply because they don't want to hold the title of single, And so I'm trying to destigmatize singlehood and I want people to stand confidently in their singleness because until you do that, I think the other stuff may not, it may not even come and it may not happen, but you'll make different decisions when you stand confidently in your singleness, but to stand confident in your singleness, I think we also have to have a conversation about the lifestyle of singles. One of the things I say at the end of the book, I say, I help people after reading this book, are just as likely to ask somebody, why are you married? As we are to ask somebody, why are you single? We always ask single folks why you're married, why you're single, but we don't ask married folks why they're married and if we continue to ask single folks and don't ask married folks we privilege and normalize marriage but we have to understand that there's alternatives to that conversation there is a rise in globalhood and besides just having married as one avenue there should be an additional or additional narratives that are out there and singlehood is a narrative that should be out there and we need to talk about that much more the book tries to do that
1: So one of the most impressive feats that you pull off in the book is that you move beyond this deficit view of singlehood and you use your interview data to take kind of an intersectional approach to understand how race, gender, and singleness inform sort of the lifestyle choices of members of the cohort. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it was important for you to include men and women in your sample and take this intersectional analytical approach?
0: Yes, 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 yes. So here's kind of what's really funny to me like I said earlier I was starting to notice in this and it's funny because wherever I go and I'm in these singlehood spaces people know my argument before I even get there they see me and they know what I'm gonna say so I don't even have to open my mouth which is both good and bad and like oh here comes Chris with this intersectional approach yes here it comes because I think what's happening is that there's a rise in singlehood and you've got like for example you have white women you see a rise in singlehood among white women women and maybe that's more so of a choice For them. But I think it's important for us to think about Black women in particular and think about how Black women have to understand that whether or not they're single by choice or by force, and we can have that, we have that conversation in the book. Before you even get to that, that conversation, as a sociologist, I was really trying to broaden the conversation and not have singlehood conversations at the individual level. I was trying to offer a structural perspective to singlehood. And one of the things I say in the book, and I often say, is that I'm trying to get people to understand how structural forces constrain personal choices. I try to get people to understand how structural forces constrain personal choices. Put differently, I'm trying to get people to understand how racism, how gender racism constrains personal choices. If I were to give you an example, if I, Chris Marsh, want to marry another heterosexual Black male who owns the property makes $250,000 and has estate planning. They're simply not there. So whether or not I'm single by choice or by force now on this side of the equation, we have to understand like there's a structural component that has limited my choices to begin with. And people don't always want to have that conversation. They always want to say, oh, why aren't black women getting married? I was like, that's not an individual. We're not having this individual conversation. We're going to overlay some structure on this. And in that, you know, we have to think about intersectionality. think about how these oppressive identities in tandem work together to think about how some people are single and some people aren't single and one of the things i was afraid air quotes about when i wrote the book i thought people were going to indict me because they think about intersectionality how these multiple identities are we can't we can't look at them in individual silos but together so for example i am i'm I'm a Black woman. I'm not Black and a woman. I'm a Black woman. And you have to understand me from that perspective. Because to understand racism, you ignore the sexism that I have to go through. To look at sexism, you ignore the racism I have to go through. So you have to understand these identities in tandem or together. So Patricia Hill Collins, who, who writes about intersectionality, talks about the matrix of domination. So these oppressive identities, identities that she talks about are race, class, and gender. So I, in the book, said that we need to expand the matrix of domination and it should be race, class, gender, and singleism. And I thought people were gonna push back on me. Now, hear me what I say. I am not saying that singleism is as oppressive as racism, but what I am suggesting is that being single, everything move. Everything in these social institutions are to, um, catered towards as being partnered and being married. And so singleism permeates every social institution just like racism does. And people are like, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Dr. Marsh. So I don't get pushback here. But where I do get pushback, and later on in the book, I talk about how we need to redefine the way in which we think of family. So family is often defined by the Census Bureau, someone that you're related to by blood, marriage, or adoption. So I, Chris Marsh, would not show up in the census data as a family. I would show up as a household. And I think it is highly insidious that I can't be considered a family. Because if you buy my argument that structural forces constrain personal choices, structural forces constrain my personal choices, and then you don't allow me to be defined as a family, which there's benefits to being defined as a family, highly problematic for me. Three benefits that I think I want to leave. I want to leave with the readers to think about. One's benign and one's more, much more egregious. So I think about like my cell phone plan. I want to get the family rate on my one cell phone plan. I want to pay less for my one cell phone plan. There's only one. I want to pay less. A more, slightly more egregious example is um uh, double occupancy versus single occupancy. I just got back from my, I was just turned 50 last week and I went to Mauritius, an island off of the East, Southern coast of Africa and stayed at the Four Seasons I lived my very best life. But single occupancy is more expensive than double occupancy. Structural forces have constrained my personal choices. And then you're going to openly discriminate against me, make me pay more as a single occupant. The one that everybody will shake their heads up and down as they're listening to this podcast is the tax structure. There is a singlehood penalty built into the tax structure. Dorothy Brown wrote a beautiful book because she's out of the law field of law, school of law. She wrote a beautiful book called The Whiteness of Wealth. And one of the things she argues in her book is that we all need to file our taxes as single. If we can't all file our taxes as single, I want to file as the Marsh family and I want to get my discount as the Marsh family. Family. So people push back. They're like, "Oh, you can't redefine family." And at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily redefining family, but certain household types should not be advantaged because they're in a certain kind of household types, and others are disadvantaged. Especially if structural forces have constrained personal choices. And so, it's, you have to have an intersectional approach to think about singlehood. People see me coming; they know that's going to be my argument, and I'm excited to have that argument every single time of every single time I go somewhere. And I'm going to continue to have the argument. The second part of your question was about men. And I'm so glad that I included men into the group. Um, women dominate the category. I think in the in the book, I have 72, 62 respondents. I can't remember. I think women are 40. There's 40 women and 20 men or something like that. And I'm glad that I did include men because there were some subtle nuances that were picked up in the book around gender. And I'm so happy that I included them too that I think could stand out to me. One is that the black women in the cohort that I interviewed, they um, friends played a central role. Friends played a central role. And they talked over and over again about how they had these non-romantic nurturing relationships. And it really helped them navigate their singleness and help them with their singlehood the men didn't really talk about those non-romantic nurturing relationships. In fact, they talked about how like, if they did have these non-romantic nurturing relationships with other men, they may be thought of as gay or they may be thought of as soft. So I hope after reading the book, we can normalize non-romantic nurturing relationships for both, both groups at the end of the day. And then the other thing that was really interesting is that a lot of the, a lot of the women and some of the women in the cohort wanted to be married, but they were not willing to settle. They were not going to settle. And so they were hopeful that they got married one day. And for the men, it was just a matter of time before they did get married. And I swear to you, Bliss, as a scholar, I struggle with that. And I still do. I was like, what does that actually mean does that mean that they're just going to pick the lesser of two evils or whoever's just around they're going to decide to be with I was like and what does that mean for the woman who knows that they're they're just picking them because they want to be they, they're deciding they want to be partnered versus the woman that's like no it's got to make sense I'm not settling it's got to be a really great positive healthy um nurturing relationship so had I not included men in the conversation those two nuances gender nuances wouldn't have come up so I'm so happy that I did include them in the conversation. And I promise I'm going to keep my answer shorter.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's great hearing you talk about these findings and you're often anticipating the questions that I have. So I keep scrolling along in my interview guide. <laughs> Building on sort of some of the gender differences that you saw in your interview participants, another thing that I wanted to ask about was sort of how gender and race came together in terms of how individuals navigated where to live, sort of neighborhood choice.
0: Yeah, so, you know, some of my work has been on, some of my earlier work was on residential segregation patterns. And I'm just fascinated on where people live and why they live where they live. And so I wanted, again, I'm trying to talk about the lifestyle of people that are single and living alone. I kid you not, Bliss, I wanted to write an entire book without even having a dating chapter in there. And Cambridge was like, how are you going to write a book about people that are single and living alone and don't have a dating chapter in there? Because- I didn't want to get caught up. I didn't want to get bogged down in that part of the conversation. I really wanted to celebrate. I really wanted to highlight the lifestyle of people that were single and living alone. Like for example, where are they choosing to live? Because they don't have the albatross of partner and children around their neck. So they don't have to think about really good schools for their children. Think about places that are close and close proximity to their partner's job and so on and so forth. So what kind of decisions were they making on their neighborhood choices? And what were they trying to get out of their neighborhood? And again, this gets back to the notion about friends and for the women in particular a lot of the women talked about how they wanted to be in close proximity to their friends because it was a safety issue and also because they wanted to socialize with them so friends played a central role in how they navigated their singlehood but also to the point of how and where they decided to live and so I think it's really important that we just think about this kind of stuff it can't just always be why aren't black women getting married but they're buying houses. They live in a certain kind of neighborhoods. And let's talk about that part. So that's what the book is really trying to kind of do. And it's so funny. One of the men in the response, one of the respondents in the book, um, he was a single black man. He lived, I think on a cul-de-sac and he was like, you know, I always try to speak to the neighbors and stuff because at the end of the day, I'm not married and don't have any children. And they think I'm that freak. I'm that weirdo at the end of the block. So he's always tries to be really friendly with his neighbors, but not too friendly, but just so that they don't think he's some kind of weirdo. And I think again, we need to destigmatize singlehood, which leads to a wonderful conversation that happens in the book and I even say to the listeners or to the readers and to the listeners hey figure it out on your own because I can't figure it out I think I said something to that vein in the book because we talked about like who's more we asked about who was more stigmatized (laughs) younger folks or older folks men or women Listen, that thing was all across the board. It was so interesting to read the narratives in that in that section because you had like younger folks talk about how older folks were more stigmatized. And you ta- if people talk about younger folks, it was really interesting because they said, um, clearly younger folks are more stigmatized because they have a bigger dating pool. And so if they're not married, clearly something's wrong with them. But as you get older, people die off. So since you die off, we gonna give you a pass. And I'm like, wait, what is that? and then they talked about how women are more stigmatized than men because if you're a single woman if I can use profanity I think they even kind of use that like you're an angry black bitch or you're a ball buster and you know no one wants to be bothered with you but if you're an older black man you're not married don't married aren't married don't have any children clearly you're down on the down low you're in the closet and you're gay so here's where I had to finally settle I was like I don't know, I can't say if it's younger folks that are more stigmatized or older folks that are more stigmatized or if it's men or women, but I'm just using that binary because that's what we use in the the book. But what I can say, the common denominator is that there is a stigma associated with being single. And this book is really trying to push back hard against that. And people that I've talked to over the months that has come out, because it came out in February, They're like, Dr. Marsh, thank you for writing this book because you really have, you've offered a a different narrative and, or an additional narrative. And you almost like started a movement about, you know, really celebrating our singleness. And I was like, I will absolutely take the movement. Yes, I am here for it.
1: (laughs) So yeah. No, I found the, the variation in responses to that question. Like, so who do you think is most uh, stigmatized for being single? Everybody, <laughs> that person, <laughs> this person, that person, everybody.
0: <laughs> like, right. And at some point my editor and for the record, I have three different editors that helped me with the book. Two things I want to say for the listeners. One thing that I want to say, and I'm telling everybody, because I have so many friends that wrote academic books and nobody told me this or maybe I just didn't read my contract because I was so excited to get a contract. I was—I didn't care. But Cambridge gets 90% of each book that I sell. 90%. I get 10%. I am astonished. I saw it in my contract. I didn't read it in my contract. I was so happy to have a contract. I didn't care. But I want to go on record. So everybody knows I said it first. When you write an academic book, the publisher is going to get the vast majority of the proceeds on every book. They get 90%. Percent. You can email me and tell me thank you when you get your first royalties check. Be like, what just happened? The other thing is that people, I off, when I first started graduate school, um, I thought people just sat down and wrote these beautiful articles and beautiful books. I have three editors that have helped me with my book. I have a content editor. I have a line editor. I have like just an editor of my therapist, who I also consider to be my editor as well. So one of the things my editor said in that section about stigma, he's like, now you want to have this all 15 page section on the stigma. I was like, well, it's so interesting. He was like, no, you cannot do that. You're going to have to cut some of this down and try to synthesize it and see where it is. And I was like, and it was all over the place. Everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. But the reality is, The common denominator is that there was a stigma associated with being single.
1: So you introduce another really rich term and you use it to describe how respondents make sense of being single in a social context that still prioritizes being partnered. Tell me about respectability singleness.
0: Uh, Yes, that's a great term. And I use it in the book and it's really kind of interesting because One of the things that a lot of the women in particular, if I remember talked about, they're like, you know, I kind of want to be married, but if it doesn't happen, I'm okay with that. I'm enjoying my singlehood and so on and so forth, but I'm not willing to just go after some man and I'm not willing to just take any kind of relationship. And I thought that that was really, really, really important because women in the book could have possibly been married if they wanted to, but they just weren't willing to sacrifice. They had a standard they were going to keep to their standard and they were not willing to deviate from their standard. And that's really important because I think what happens a lot of times is that we often police Black women and tell them what they should do. I remember just a little while ago, there was some lady who was on a show and they asked whether or not she would date a bus driver or not. And she was like, I would date the owner of the bus driver. And so because I do stuff on singlehood, they call me and ask me if I comment. I said, absolutely not. I will not. That's none of my business. But what I will say is why are we constantly policing black women? Why can't black women be? let If they wanna marry up, marry down, whatever, let them marry who they wanna marry. Stop talking about how loud we should or should not be, how big our butts should or should not be, how our hair should be straight, natural or not natural. Stop having these conversations, stop policing black women. And so there's women that are standing very confidently in their singleness. They're not willing to deviate. They're not willing to just get married for the sake of getting married. And I think in a lot of ways they're looking at, they're, there's a kind of respectability behind the singleness that they're having. And we've got to embrace the fact that people are just single. And just because they're single doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. In some ways, you know, I tell, I often say to people, I wish married folks would be so much more honest about their relationships because there's some single folks that are happy throughout the book one of the things that I did realize and I did note is that for the majority of the time people were happy with their singleness they were hoping they'd get married but they were doing other things and living their best lives until they until that were if that were until that happened if it did happen but there was a small segment of people that talked about sometimes that they were they were lonely but when they and I call it in the book situational loneliness I believe And one of the things that they talk about is that, you know, majority of the time, 70, 80% of the time I'm good, but there's like 20 or 30% where I'm not so good, but it's not so much like this debilitating uh loneliness where they're under they're under the covers covers up over their head they're in the fetal position they're rocking themselves to sleep they can't get a bed get out of bed for three weeks no it's more so like around like these romantic air quote holidays like fourth um valentine's day when everybody's got somebody that's giving them chocolates and uh, flowers or it's um maybe new year's eve where everybody has somebody to kiss but they, you know, they, again, they have their friends, their friends help them get through that little crunchy situational loneliness and they get themselves back on track. But people, their assumption is people are single, they're lonely, they're depressed, they're not happy. I was like, how about you talk to married folks and see how they feeling? Cause these single folks are doing the doggone thing and they are okay with it. But I want to do be, I do want to be balanced. <laughs> that That's majority of the story, but there is a, sl- another, um, Part of the story where there tends to be a little tends to be a little bit of loneliness, but it really is just situational. It's very short in term. It's very mild, and they're able to get back on track and they move forward. And you know, one of the things that has kind of come out of the book, and I really appreciate it, is that I think we often privilege. We do. We privilege romantic relationships. And we don't really privilege our non-romantic nurturing relationships, right? Our friends. So why can't we send our friends, our non-romantic nurturing friends, flowers and chocolates on Valentine's Day? Why does it have to be our romantic relationships? And when people say, I want to be in a relationship, I admonish them to clarify what type of relationship they want to be in because we are in non-romantic nurturing relationships. You may not be in a romantic relationship, but when you say you want to be in a relationship, you negate these non-romantic nurturing relationships that really fuel you and really help your single lifestyle. So I would admonish people, when you say you want to be in a relationship, please clarify that you want to be in a romantic relationship. But then I would ask you to ask yourself, why do you want to be in a romantic relationship? We are conditioned from a very young age that, you know, we're supposed to be married. We're supposed to be partnered. Funny story. I have a friend of mine who um, recently got married and he's like, I just like light-skinned women. And so when he said that, I just took a really long pause, a pregnant pause. And I said, No. It's not that you just like light-skinned women. I would respect you and appreciate you if you would say you've been conditioned from a very young age that closer to white is right. And so you've decided that you bought into that hook, line, and sinker. So you only gonna date and marry light-skinned women versus I just like light-skinned women. That's not a critical answer. Same question. It's a simple question. Why do you want to get married? It's a really good, it's a simple question, but I think it's very critical and people really need to stop, pause, and think about it because- we've been conditioned from a very young age that you're supposed to be in this romantic relationship and it's supposed to be this wonderful thing and your partner's supposed to be your everything and so on and so forth. But there's some um, preliminary data that's coming out saying that sick partners, spouses are actually leaving spouses when spouses actually get sick. They don't know how to navigate their sickness. So why do you think just because you're married, your spouse is going to show up for you? I think your friends and your girls and your dudes will show up for you. So people put all people like, okay, if I could just get married, it's like, you know, in the Bible, they talk about just getting to the water. If I could just get to the water, the healing effect. So people think marriage is kind of like this healing effect, or it's this, it's this bomb in Gilead, or it is like this, 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 it's this panacea. It's gonna make all the ills go away. And that's really, doesn't really, it doesn't always pan out like that. You could be married and miserable and, um, but you have friends that are going to show up for you. So it's really important that we think about our friends. We cultivate our friendships. And even if we're partnered, it still is important that we still cultivate our non-romantic nurturing relationships as well. And don't put all of our eggs in the, in the marriage basket, because that's exhausting. If we have to be your confidant, we have to be you, your, your therapist, we have to be, your friend, we've got to be your sounding board. That's a lot. Get yourself some play dates and then come back together. And I say that because I was in the airport and I was talking to this young man about my book and he's like, well, I'm married. So I don't need to read it. And so I said to myself, "With an attitude like that, you may not be married long. I think everybody can learn something from the book. The book is not just for people that are single and living alone, and it's not just for people that are middle class. Here's an interesting title about single. All of us have held it at one point in time so the book can benefit everybody you don't have to be black and middle class i was literally on a call this morning with someone that read the book she's a 49 year old white woman who's married and she's like dr marsh thank you for the book i didn't know what a living trust was my husband and i had established one because of your book on people that are black single and living alone in the black middle class so anybody can enjoy the book anybody can learn something from the book and um i just think that it's a it's a good book and you don't have to be single you don't have to be married anybody should pick up and if you're married and if you didn't think that you know you're now married and the t- single title doesn't work for you that's fine read the book so you know how to navigate your single friends and you stop asking them why they're single the respondents talked over and over again how they have to go to holiday functions and they have to get their narrative air quotes together before they get to the holiday function as to why they're single because people are like you're so pretty you're so nice you're so accomplished why aren't you married it's like oh yeah if we're going to have that conversation, everybody's going to explain their status and single folks are not going to be able to just explain their status. So anybody should pick up the book because if you think you're married and don't need to read it, at least you pick it up and figure out how to navigate your single friends.
1: So- In addition to teaching people that we should all be, no matter what your partnership status is, you should be nurturing non-romantic relationships. Something else that I think this book provides is invaluable advice about estate planning. According to your data, when interviewees were asked about, so who's the beneficiary of your assets? Many of them gave a shocking response. Tell us more about that, because I gasped when I got to this chapter. I said, oh. right.
0: So we we had an interview protocol. And we asked, like, who are you going to bequeath your assets to? And the majority of the people that we started to interview said parents. So much so that we had to change the interview protocol and say, OK, if your parents were no longer living, who would be the benefactors or the beneficiaries of your estate or of or, or your assets. And so it was really funny because I think I talked about it in two different places in the book. One was in a footnote and one was in the actual text. I talk about how we actually had to change it. And it's funny because what happens is that the people that we interviewed, the 62 people that we interviewed, I think that they were thinking in the current time as we currently were talking as opposed to down the line and the reason why this became really an interesting conversation is because were they also thinking about their singleness in the current state and that was going to change later in life so much so that we had to say let's not look at your singleness now but let's assume you're going to be in this 20 30 40 years later, who are you going to bequeath your assets to? And it became a really interesting conversation. And I think it is a really interesting conversation. And a lot of them talked about how they were going to bequeath it to their niece, to their nephew, to their godchildren. And women said that they were going to give some of their um, assets away to organizations that they belong to. Men did not say that as much. But here's what I think is really interesting about that. Two things, one in the book I talk about how only 30% of black folks have estate planning. Prince didn't have anything, Aretha Franklin didn't have anything and John Singleton didn't have anything. Um, Now, Aretha Franklin was sick, so she should have had something. Uh, I think John Singleton was sick, Prince was tragic and that was a little different. But um, the cohort only 25% had some kind of estate planning in place. And I am of the mindset, I don't care how little you have or how much you have, especially if you're single and living alone. No matter how much it is or is not, make sure you know exactly where your assets are going to go to and do not let the court in this let it sit in probate. Make sure you know if it, something changes later on and you get married and you and your partner decide what you want to do with it. Yes. But now at this point, you need to take care of that. And put that in place at the, the white woman told me that and at least four black friends have said, all right, Chris. I went and talked to an estate planner. One guy was like, "I just he sent me the sent me his little portfolio. He was like, I just finished it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.' So I'm really happy that people are really thinking about it and using this book in very practical terms and doing estate planning because of the conversation that we're actually having in the book. But what also I, what I also think is really interesting is I've talked to people outside of the of academia about the book, and I've talked to some estate planning companies, and they're like, "Well, how do we tap into this market? And I'm like, I'm all for you tapping into this market, but not in an exploitive kind of way. If we look at some of the commercials, I appreciate the commercials. There's they're they've evolved. You see same sex couples, you see interracial couples, you'll even see like single parents, but you get to single, single person in these commercials for estate planning. And because, especially because you are single, we really need to think about estate planning. So that's one of the practical um, applications the book has and people have really have rallied around that. And there's a little tick uptick in estate planning because of people reading the book, or I I want to believe there's an uptick in estate planning because people have read the book.
1: Ultimately, you write that the Love Jones cohort they demonstrate sort of efficient singlehood. I love this phrase so much, and it's one that I've heard you use in other interviews and other writings. Can you tell us more about sort of what efficient singlehood is and why it's important to spotlight it?
0: Right. So I think what's really important, it kind of gets back to the conversation I was having earlier about how Black women have shown the world how to do singlehood, whether or not it's by choice or it's by force. Black women have adapted, it's an adaptation and they have learned how to do singlehood. They have friends that are helping them through their singlehood and they're learning. And it's a, it's just a way they they're doing it efficiently and effectively, and we need to bannerize them. We need to give them their roses, their flowers, and all of this kind of stuff, and make sure that we don't allow singlehood to take on a white gaze, because Black women have been doing this for years, and they are showing everybody else the way, and that's one of the things that was really, really, really important to me, and again, it doesn't matter if it was by choice or by force. There is an adaptation that happened, and they're doing it, and they're doing it, and they're doing it well. And so much so that now singlehood is on the rise. There was something in the census that that said I think forty eight percent of the of pop, the U.S. population is single. I'm like, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, women are the pioneers or the trailblazers, things that show you how you can do it and do it well, and I'm I'm all I'm all for it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then is there anything that you sort of haven't been asked about this book, um, about either the process of researching it or writing it or even publicizing it that you haven't been asked but that you'd like to talk about?
0: So I think there's three things that I want to kind of highlight. So the first is that... Um, One of the things that I say in the beginning of the book and also gets back to the beginning of the podcast where I said I wrote the book that I wanted to write in the preface or the very beginning of the book I say that this book is a politics of citation. And what I mean by that is that it was really important for me to cite black scholars that were talking about black families. Um, You have scholars that don't necessarily look like me who have spent their entire careers talking about black families and now they become the expert. And I wanted to be intentional. I wanted to be unapologetically Black in writing this book. And I wanted to cite Black scholars and young Black scholars um, who talk about Black families. That was really important to me. And I'm glad that I wrote the book that I wanted to write. It was risky because Cambridge could have very well said, Dr. Marsh, you didn't cite the canonical work on Black families. Translation, white scholars are talking about Black families, so we're not going to publish it. So it really is a love letter to people that are single and living alone, but it's also an ode or love letter. To black scholars and black scholarships, that's one thing. Number two, um, so it's interesting how you read the book. So, um, one of the things that I say in the book, uh, one of the things I've noticed in the book, but I had to do the copy edits for the book, in. The introduction and chapter one are a little different read than chapters two through 10. So as you're reading chapters uh, one and the introduction, as you're reading the introduction in chapter one, it is a bit theoretical. If theory is not your thing, hold on until you get to chapter two. Once you get to chapter two, it's going to be a very different read, but you have to hold on until you get to chapter two, because the theoretical part is you have to lay out your argument and so on and so forth. If you're a theory person, you're going to love the introduction in chapter one. I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, before we got on that I wrote this book for my sister. I always had my sister, Kim, in mind, who was not a sociologist. And I was like, I want Kim and her friends to be able to pick up the book and read this book and have a conversation around it. From chapter two to 10, you can. Chapters, uh, introduction and chapter one, ah, not so much. And then loosely, closely related to that is the third part about um, the book. So one of the things, like I said, I have an editor and I have editors for many different things and many different reasons, and I appreciate my editors. So my editor often told me that I talk, I write in a stream of consciousness. I just write. Clearly, you could notice from me being on this call, I have very long and long winded answers to very short questions. So I probably talk in a stream of consciousness, too. So my editor said, if you ever feel like you're going off on a tangent, put things in the footnote, but try to keep your footnotes to a minimum. So I have 120 footnotes. In the book. (laughs) So I'm not sure I took his advice completely and totally, or took her advice either completely and totally. But I think that there's some really good golden nuggets in the footnotes. Let me give you a quick example. Um, So in the earlier chapters, we talk about like the responsibility of the Black middle class to the large, of the Love Jones to the larger Black middle class and what responsibility they have. Because the responsibility is a huge part of the uh, literature on the Black middle class. And so a lot of the respondents brought up W.E.B. Du Bois and the notion of the talented 10th. In real layman's terms, W.E.B. Du Bois said that 10% of the Black population were going to improve the life chances of the larger Black population. He actually pushed back against his own idea later on. So I had to be sensitive to the data. It had to be sensitive to what respondents said. So respondents said something about W.E.B. Du Bois. So I had to include him in the book. But in a footnote, I talked about how the respondents mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois and his writing around the Talented Tenth, but around the same time that he was writing, there was another scholar who was writing that was talking about a groundswell, and if you improve the life chances of Black women, you'll improve the life chances of everybody, and that scholar's name was Anna Julia Cooper, one of the first Black women to get a Ph.D., But Anna Julia Cooper wasn't able to get a lot of her research published because she was a Black woman. The academic rumor and skedaddle is is that W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the gatekeepers that would not allow her work to actually get published. There's an academic article that was written that talked about how... Um, W.E.B. Du Bois is even thought of as plagiarizing some of her work. There's a scholar in Canada, her name was Kimberly Michelle Phillips, that wrote a book about this tension between the Black, between Anna Julia Cooper and W.E.B. Du Bois. As a Black woman, I was not, and a Black scholar, I was not going to write a book about people that were single and living alone and have W.E.B. Du Bois in my book without having Anna Julia Cooper in the book. So, I said I like to say, you got to read the footnotes because there's some really juicy stuff in the footnotes. So those are the kind of the three. Oh, one last thing and one last caveat I'd like to put out there. You know, I tend to get a lot of hate mail about the work. People think that I'm saying, oh, black women don't need a black man and blah, 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 blah. So people will email me, tell me I'm bad for Black America and I'm not supporting Black love. And I'm like, oh, Contra, I actually am supporting Black love. But I'm saying, let's be more inclusive in how we think about Black love. Married couple, heteronormative, that's fine. But how about we think about people that are in families of one being um, part of Black love and or this idea about augmented families where we can actually establish some kind of um institutionalized non-romantic nurturing relationships. So you have two single people who aren't married, don't have any children. Why can't they develop an augmented family? And so for, for estate planning and for later life health outcome implications, why can't they be a family? So I'm trying to be more inclusive of how we think about black family, not less inclusive. So I am about black love and I'm trying to be as supportive of black love as much as I possibly can.
1: And then we've taken up so much of your time today, but my last question, what are you working on now?
0: Oh, so two things. One, I was a Fulbright scholar in South Africa 2017. And so I really, I have, I have a book and a couple of chapters, a proposal, a book proposal, a couple of chapters written around the Black middle class in South Africa. When I was going to South Africa, I don't want to throw my mother under the bus. But when I was going to South Africa, I was like, oh my gosh, mother, I got approved to go to South Africa to study the Black middle class. She's like, baby, do they have paved roads? I was like, see, now I got to write a whole book around the Black middle class in South Africa, because in spite of, there is a Black middle class, and yes, they do have paved roads, by the way. And so I think people think about South Africa in a very, very uh, tunnel vision kind of view. They think about HIV, they think about famine, they think about apartheid. But there is a thriving Black middle class in South Africa. And so in a lot of ways, I want to juxtapose the Black middle class in South Africa with the Black middle class in America. So I'm working on that book. I just was in South Africa last week talking with my collaborators and we're hoping to get that book done by the end of this year or next year. And we're going to write that with the South African press, because I didn't want to be an American who mined the data and came back to America and published it with the University of California Press. So we're probably going to um, publish that with KwaZulu natal Press, because it is important for me to publish that with the South African press. And then, like I said earlier, uh, I started doing police training in 2015, 17, 17, uh, 18, and I also started golfing because I wanted to figure out a way to kind of not internalize some of the things that was happening with my officers with the interaction with the officers. So I was like, I need an outlet. So I started golfing and I'm actually really good at golf. Never, ever thought that I would like golf. I'm good at it. I enjoy it. But I also see the sociology in it. So Mm -hmm. I plan to write a book around golf. And I want to think, I want to look at like the racism, sexism, and classism that exists on the golf course. What we do know about golf is that golf is one of those sports that try to stay as white as it possibly could and try to stay as segregated as it possibly could. There is a golf course in the state of Maryland right now that women are not allowed to play in. And one of my friends who was black went went to that course. I was like, you do know black folks probably weren't allowed. Black men probably weren't allowed uh, at, at some point in time. In fact, the rumor is President Obama was denied uh, membership. I'm like, you are in the elite club of only a few presidents that American presidents are alive, and you are de- you were declined. They they came to their senses and then let him into the club, but. So I think that there's a whole race, class, gender dynamic that plays out so beautifully on the golf course. It is not a book about golf. It is a book about sociological terms and using golf to really give an abs- a concrete example of how these sociological terms play out. I often say that when I'm talking about that book, I think about how it, being invited to the dance but not being asked to dance. Golf has desegregated, but they have clearly not integrated. And I was doing some research, preliminary research for the book. And I did not know there's a golf tee. It's where you put your golf ball before you hit your ball. And the golf tee was actually made by a black dentist. I wonder how many white people are out there playing golf or non-black people and didn't realize they were teeing up their ball. By a, a, a teeing up their ball with a T that was developed by a black dentist. I can't wait to write that part. <laughs> so I'm really excited about the book. It's really funny because I was trying to think of preliminary titles. I told you titles are important. And so I first thought of, so these are golf terms. So I thought of saying birdies, bogeys, those are golf terms, uh, bitches and blacks. And I was like, ah. I don't think my mother is going to allow me to have bitches in the title of my book, so I'm thinking birdies, bogeys, and the blacks. (laughs) Understanding racism, classism, and sexism on the golf course, but I think a a, a catchy title can really get catch people's eye eye. And so, yeah, I think. Uh, birdies bogeys and the blacks is going to be the title of that book and it's going to be a really fun interesting book to write people that don't know about golf will learn about golf and people that um, want to act as a structural racism doesn't exist I've explained it to you I've given you clear examples what else do you need so it'll be another uh, telling book and I hope people will learn something from the book and the two biggest compliments that I've gotten out of the book so far is that I've heard people people have said to me three one you're starting a movement 2 You've allowed me to be seen for the first time, and three, um, I learned something. So I hope that with the any book that I write, those are like the three compliments that I get because I think those are high compliments, and I
1: appreciate those, Dr. Marsh, thank you so much for this rich discussion. The Love Jones Cohort: Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. It's a fascinating read. And I encourage our listeners to obtain a copy and learn more about this topic.
0: Thank you so much for having me.